Welcome to Humans of Fintech, the show that tells the stories of diverse leaders who found a sense of belonging in our industry, so you can too. I'm Nicole Kasperson, and in this episode, I sat down with Henry Yoshida. He's the co-founder and CEO of Rocket Dollar, a web platform that lets people invest tax-advantaged retirement dollars into alternative investments like venture capital and crypto. Henry has a unique journey finding his sense of belonging in fintech. He spent years studying personal finance and learned how to apply new technology to a paper-driven and complex industry so that more people could have affordable access to alternative investing. In this episode, you'll learn about Henry's background, including his story about his parents from Japan, his time at Merrill Lynch, and how he created a robo-advisor, Honest Dollar, that sold to Goldman Sachs. All of these experiences tie together to fuel him to create Rocket Dollar, and I'm so excited for you to hear his story and his unique journey. Enjoy. Really to start, your background does have a huge influence on your career and why you chose to be a part of the fintech industry. And maybe just to start, you know, the backstory of your parents being from Japan, I know that is a huge influence uh, for you. And, you know, my own personal take on that is when you have an immigrant parent, it changes a lot or you have a lot of reflecting to do in your upbringing. So we just love to hear that side of it for you first. Sure. Well, and two types of immigrant parents, I think a lot on the Asian American side. So the educated that came over here for job opportunities and the uneducated, you know, just kind of getting away from where they were. That was my parents came here, never went to college, kind of career working in the restaurant industry. And the way it shaped me was that they just were always working from behind and they did everything to sort of allow my brother and I to not be in that position. So we worked really hard to fit into the system, that sort of model minority type mindset, do well in school, play by the rules. That's really what drove a lot of how we grew up. And and it shaped us a lot because they sacrificed. So we almost had to try to do well and fit within the system here in the US. Yeah, there's a ton of pressure to be perfect, a ton of pressure to, as you said, it be a model minority. I grew up the same way. My mom's from the Philippines. It was always a, you know, heads down, don't rock the boat. You are lucky to be here mentality. And, you know, that maybe at, it, at its time was suitable, but today it's, things are very different. And when you think about that as a part of your upbringing, do you, how has that translated into like the fintech space? Well, just what I saw with my parents growing up, uh, again, they were always working behind, let's say from a money standpoint, you know, they didn't have, let's say a big chunk of money to put as a down payment on a house. So we were always, you know, we had a house, so we weren't so bad off that we didn't have a home, but they always had the big mortgage on the house and didn't have the big down payment. So you had to stack, let's say two loans to even get into the home. And it made it pretty hard to build equity inside of it. So FinTech to be fair, was actually the second choice for me. I really thought that in America, The people who won knew how to establish the rules. So I had grown up my entire life wanting to be a lawyer, thinking that the best way to know the rules is to study it and then be the person that actually writes those rules. And the way I interpreted rules was laws. And so I was very dead set on becoming a lawyer, you know, just probably watched and read too many John Grisham books and the ones that were turned (laughs) into movies and so forth. That was my path, uh, but ended up not going. The next best thing was 
finance, which was a different set of rules. And, and that's where I ultimately ended up. Yeah, I love that. And you were a CFP at Merrill Lynch for about 10 years, right? You started mm-hmm. your own RIA and then sold that before kind of building in the fintech space. So sure. did you feel like you fulfilled any of the you know new rule creating, I guess, that you were yeah. trying to do? Or yeah, what kind of, I guess, part of that, that uh, journey does that kind of lie for you? So I spent 10 years at Merrill Lynch and I started in the middle of a recession, essentially. So that that also shaped how I did Merrill Lynch. So typically you work at in financial services. Your job is to go and get clients who have a lot of money, individual high net worth people to work with you and give you money so you can manage and, and give them advice. That wasn't my path. Uh, the real passion for me was that I found a path inside of Merrill Lynch that allowed me to work on small business retirement plans. And the business owner typically was pretty well off, but I actually got paid to sit in lunchrooms and break rooms and tell people that they should start in their first job and maybe put five or 10% uh, starting at 5% and work your way up to 10%, definitely enough to get the match in a 401k. And I just love that I got paid at Merrill Lynch to talk to regular people, to tell them about one very key financial rule that my own parents didn't know about. They worked in the restaurant industry, so they didn't really have a 401k. And if they did, no one would have been there to tell them to enroll in this thing, get put enough money into the match. And so that was a different set of rules and just set me on a path to thinking that this is how you succeed as a citizen in the United States. You do these things, you save in your 401k, you, you, know, you, you spend below your means, you don't get too much uh, indebtedness and so forth. That's what I loved about Merrill Lynch. Uh, and of course, I did get my CFP along the way. So I really took that to some umpteenth level to keep learning and learning and learning and consuming a lot of personal finance books, uh, probably more than anyone in your audience would care to know. <laughs> Is it a crazy number? Like, <laughs> do you have it at the top of your head? Of how it's, many- a, it's a crazy number for sure. I've read <laughs> all of them. Oh, uh, man. You know, well, that's awesome. And then so you really got into like connecting with people and I guess what's the connection between like wanting to be able to you know, sit down to ev- every day and help people to building a plan for a robo advisor with Honest Dollar, which eventually yeah. sold to Goldman Sachs and is now Marcus Invest, which is crazy uh, story. What's the connection there? So when you are a financial advisor and you're working in the 401k space, like I did for 10 years at Merrill Lynch and then continued as a, in my RA, that's the type of work that I did. I sat in lots of lunchrooms and I talked to thousands of people. This is in the six figure range over the course of 13, 14 years of doing that. But the transition to go into FinTech and building a product was actually just another way of thinking that I could reach a bigger audience. So maybe in hindsight, I probably could have tried, but maybe I'm not as good as you are at trying to build an audience, let's say through a podcast or a newsletter. And that wasn't really my personality. I wanted to see if I can impact or affect and communicate with more people. And I realized that consulting, you were limited by your physical time and space. A product allowed you to reach a larger group of people. And the robo for me was just gig economy workers making money on the side again like the restaurant industry, probably you don't have a retirement plan, probably you don't have a corporate wellness department giving you some advice. And I thought I could be one small part of that and allow people an automated savings tool if you went to your regular day job, but then to make some extra money, you delivered food or you drove for Lyft or Uber at night. 
that's essentially how we came up with the robo for that audience. People combining, doing one and a half jobs to be able to make it in today's society. And you then created Rocket Dollar, which combines really all of the things that your background shows us, right? It's something to do with retirement. It is the world of alternative investments, which you know, kind of is that that diversified white right uh, realm of doing things differently, maybe a little bit more out of the box. Sure. And so, when you created Rocket Dollar, did you realize that you were kind of maybe creating something that is considered an outside thing to financial technology, and then you brought it inside by creating something completely new? Well. You know, at this point, I'd been in and around, I guess what you could say is quote unquote, traditional financial services for 15 to 17 years. Uh, Honest Dollar went to Marcus and Goldman Sachs in 2016. We, you know, I spent a couple of years really thinking about what to do. And I really just thought throughout my entire career, that 60-40 portfolio, which is talked about in a lot of financial and personal finance books and on mainstream financial news media, really wasn't working. It wasn't working for the new generation of people, you know, that that had changed, right? None of us really should probably have 40% in bonds. And not because they're bad investments, they should have stable, predictable investments, but they just weren't performing as a counter to stocks the way they had for the 30 years prior to the year 2000. And rocket dollar for me was just that it's a way now for people to take money they already have, put a small amount into the non-correlated alternative investments. And that's probably how you're going to succeed. So I actually kind of call it the 50, 30, 20 uh, is the new 60, 40 uh, in that you should have probably 50% in equities, you know, 30% in some sort of predictable income stream that could be bonds, could be something else, and probably 20% in some form of alternatives. And, and some component of that is probably going to be cryptocurrency, which a lot of people believe in or buy right now as an investment staple, their portfolio. And I just wanted to deliver a product that allowed people to do this. So I think I'm not the person, of course, that created Bitcoin and alternative investments, but there was a need in the market that this is where people had money that was sort of stashed away in the form of IRAs. And if I can help them access that money, then they can go into these existing alternative investments, because otherwise you'd have another generation of people that only the people with a lot of means in the form of investable monies could actually access the new and better type of portfolio and every regular person would be left out. So it seems like, though you didn't become a lawyer, you did rewrite the rules by building a product. I think looking back, it's probably a better path. I mean, I think for me, it was just, it started when I was a kid thinking that knowing the rules and maybe even having a hand in sort of developing rules was the way to be a successful citizen in the United States. And I think that what ended up happening was that Actually, working in finance and understanding what it takes to be sort of a citizen functioning in society and doing the things that were expected of you, saving towards your retirement so you could have less dependence on government programs, living within your means uh, so you could provide for your family, and then parlaying that into turning creating products. That actually allowed me to create better impact and, again, sort of more broadly tell people about what it might take to, to do the right thing uh, here in the U- United States for purposes of financial planning and financial security and so forth. And Mm -hmm. so I like the path I ended up going down and maybe I go to law school someday. 
Uh, but it's who knows? never too late. <laughs> it's it, never too late. I tell my kids that uh, my oldest daughter, my plan is to maybe go to law school when she goes to undergrad. And then dad could be at the same college as her. She's 11, so she thinks that's cool right now. I figure then, in 24 months when she turns 13, she'll be definitely dad, afraid. Dad, stop. That please don't do yeah. that. Uh, and then you're going to love it. You guys can go to the library together, you know, hang out in the in the rec center. Exactly. Oh go to the union and bowling that. together. I know. Who wouldn't want to do that? <laughs> I'm like slightly glad that this is happening before or after I went to college and before my dad could ever listen to this uh, at that time. But Anyways, you never know. She may grow up and love it. But that's right. Take us back to maybe the moment you felt like fintech would really be the place where you found this sense of belonging and purpose, right? You know, you went through these phases of like, maybe I'll be a lawyer and then the CFP and then, you know, but still wanting, you know, that theme of like rewriting the rules and building something different and new to be able to fulfill all of these different aspects of your life that you were exposed to. And that's what's so interesting about humans of fintech and you know what i'm doing here is like i love hearing about how right at the end of the day these products that you've built are just you finding your own purpose and sense of belonging in the world and to do it in the fintech space is amazing yeah for me entrepreneurship and product building goes way beyond let's say i had one problem at one point in time in my life and now i'm going to build a business and disrupt that industry i mean this goes for me it's a lifelong thing. But the moment when I really felt like I belonged was I was doing these 401k meetings a long time ago. So lunch rooms, break rooms, you know, handing out actual brochures and telling people to check a box to put away 7% and then, you know, auto escalate that 1% a year. And one person who was maybe middle age said to me that, you know, there's a lot of young people. I'm one of the old people that works at this software company, but these young people will never remember you but if they make this decision to start and they're 21 and they're putting 7 to 10% of their salary, that they'll look back at some point in their life and say, that was the number one best decision we ever made. And they won't remember you, but you'll have had a part in that. And I thought, that's a heck of a lot better than the normal expected path of a typical Merrill Lynch financial advisor, which would have been to help wealthy people become wealthier and so forth. And that's when I knew that I'm going to keep doing this path. Like this was a way to help the people that might've been like my parents who were new to the country, new to like a new culture, trying to make it, uh, have children that they're bringing up in, in the school system here. And this was like an amazing rule, right? I mean, the, the basic rule, this is a, a, a FinTech podcast. If you basically save $1 out of every 10 that you ever earn for your entire working career, that is like a basic rule, but you'll probably be very well off because of this simple, simple rule that you could start in your twenties or earlier. I mean, I guess now people work even earlier. Right. They could create content right. or NFTs early, but if they saved one, a dime out of every dollar they earned, probably best decision they've ever made in their life. And it's so cool to think about, you know, you have, you have daughters and, um, you know, to think about just like the, world that they get to grow up in. Right. I always kind of think about how I feel very lucky to be like in my late 20s at the time that I am because I've gotten to do a lot of reflecting. I had uh, I dealt, I went through COVID a bit earlier in my life. So it's just so cool to think that you know you are literally helping build a better future for 
your kids, for other kids to, and they, they know, like they're in, they want to be involved with, you know, fintech. They all have phones. We all have these things and want to, want to kind of be involved. And so I think that's also just such a cool thing to think about, like the future of that. You really can't get that in a more traditional institutional role in my Well, opinion. and I, I love that probably uh, just personal finance has become a cool thing. So I'm really, really sort of happy about that, that people in their 20s are very interested in learning about this. Whereas I would say that when I was in my 20s, the world was more more about consumption and sort of extravagance and sort of discretionary spending. And I think now, I just saw there was an article that this uh, couple decided that they wanted to save money for their wedding. So they purposely had a wedding that would be all in cost under 500 bucks. And their story online on social media went totally viral um, that they were going to have a $500 wedding versus rent. There's reality shows on people who have luxury weddings, uh, luxury wedding or, or buy a house. And that's a reality TV show that exists. But these, this couple went viral for saying, nope, 500 bucks. Yeah. We both have student loans. Uh, we both have credit card debt and the economy's in a tough spot. No, I love what you're getting at because it's that cultural shift that we've seen. And I see it in my little cousins that are Gen Zers. They value values, mm-hmm. authenticity, saving money. They just have this other set of values that I think, and I'm technically a millennial, a young millennial, yeah. <laughs> but we did have a little bit of more of that extravagant lifestyle. I remember growing up and watching a show on MTV called like my sweet 16 or like, and it was literally like 16 year old girls trying to have the most expensive sweet 16s possible. Like things like that. I feel like kids aren't like that anymore. They aren't. I mean, it's, it's funny now people talk about, you know, how do you house hack? And I mean, these are popular shows, topics that you might write about. And, and I love it. I mean, I'm doing my small part to say that, look, give you access to some of the money that you have take advantage of some of these alternatives because you need that to supplement your portfolio. And of course, the accounts that we operate are very tax friendly. They're very long time horizon. They have to be used for investment. And, you know, in a way, the the rules for me ended up becoming the how to function in society rules, live below your means, Mm -hmm. uh, you you know, save and invest some portion of every dollar you earn, whether you earn a million dollars a year, whether you earn like $35,000 a year. I do remember thinking that when I was at Merrill, I read, I read other statistics back then that said that there, by number and percentage, there's actually just as many millionaires that you know were school teachers their entire careers. There might be like doctors and lawyers. Just one just chose maybe to live a little bit more responsibly in a lower salary band and so forth. But but these things are possible regardless of income level. And again, takes me back to my parents, you know, career working at restaurants, thinking that they put both of us through college. You know, I was able to play sports, uh, go on little school's trips, I realized only later in life how hard that was for them to provide that for us, that it wasn't as easy for them as it might have been for more well-to-do families, but they didn't want us to not have that experience. And it shaped a lot of who we became as adults. Is there anyone in particular who helped you feel like you belonged in the fintech space that kind of helped you get to this place? I had never really met these people, but I did follow a lot of these financial and sort of media celebrities, uh, like the Gene Chotskys, the the Clark Howards, and, and even to a lesser extent, although we're very different politically, I would say the Dave Ramseys and the Susie Ormans and so forth. But I just thought that they used their platform to 
to talk about and give advice. Now, to be fair, I looked up to them in terms of the impact that they had, but then I realized I learned later on that they actually probably invest their money very differently than the way they talk about on their show. And that drove me to be the person that lives the way that I want to, uh, uh, that I talk to people about. I mean, I live a pretty simple life, although we, my family and I've been pretty fortunate. I'm talking about my family and my children. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I try to keep them grounded and so forth. So I looked up to those people that had a really big audience and it just taught me that you need to kind of be who you portray yourself as. And I'm not sure that everyone does that in the world today. No, <laughs> they don't. <laughs> and, um, I think that that's kind of the beauty of fintech and financial technology and why we're all here, right? Is to be able to help people find almost a different I would say almost more authentic identity with their finances, with their jobs, with all of the things, right? Whether you're a small business owner and, you know, FinTech is able to help automate one thing that makes your life a little bit easier Mm -hmm. or, you know, helps you, right, invest and create a better retirement plan for you. And, you know, whether that's with Rock Dollar or whatever it is, you know, there's so many avenues. I kind of want to ask you about uh, something you tweeted that I think would... I listeners would love to have more context around. Oh, this is on scary. April t- <laughs> It's also bad. <laughs> it's also bad. Tweeted. It's uh, on April 12th, you said struggling business owners spend time to save money, but successful business owners spend money to save time. You can always get more money, but you can never get more time. Yeah. I loved that, but I wanted to hear the backstory for you on uh, why you felt complied to tweet that. So I don't have a huge following on Twitter. So I was having this conversation with a friend of mine on Saturday night. And he said he saw another tweet that I put. This was just the other day. And we happened to see each other. Very cool venue. So I'll tell you this real quick. Uh, we They just opened a new arena or concert venue here in Austin. So they're, they're giving discounted tickets. It was a Bon Jovi concert. So we're talking about the set of Bon Jovi concerts. So probably not relevant cool. for millennials and Gen Zers, but yeah, it's bon Jovi. I think it's cool. <laughs> yeah, very cool concert. And I told him that I use Twitter as kind of my own way, my stream of consciousness to put notes, knowing that I don't get followed like Elon Musk, uh, you know, with 100 million followers, but I can put stuff there and I can reference it in the past. But I guess I felt compelled to do it thinking that you have to have a great team around you and it costs a lot of money to have a great team. And I think I talked to entrepreneurs that complain that, hey, right now, job market's really competitive. It's hard to get the right people on your team and do stuff. And I tell them that, look, that's the number one thing you should be spending money on is is putting talented people around you. And I said, you're probably doing a good job if you're an entrepreneur and you have imposter syndrome thinking that you're not as smart as the people that are on your team. That probably means you're doing pretty well. That's a good imposter syndrome, by the way, that you feel like, wow, the people that have chosen to come to come to work in the trenches with me every day are far more talented than, than I might be on my best day. Uh, and it costs money to do that. So I think to myself, you put a great team around you and you spend money for that, then they make your company, your product, and you look a lot better than you probably really are. I'm so. glad I asked this because one, I had no idea that that was going to be the backstory, right? And yeah. I completely agree. I can only imagine how hard it is starting out as you know founder, especially in the fintech space. It is super saturated. There's a ton going on, a lot of competition. And you know, sometimes maybe the best answer to that is, hey, you need to spend money on having the best people around you. I love the mindset of like, you don't 
want to be the smartest person in the room. You want to have like the best minds around you. And that is how you'll be able to have people check your blind spots, you know, have be, be a leader who can truly create these innovative products and to make it long lasting and make it sustainable, especially when, you know, the fintech space can be scary. You see companies fold and, and this or that. Yeah. So to have these kind of like grounded foundational values to me makes a lot of sense. Well, and you, and you listen to them. So that's a big thing. You give them, you give them the power. I mean, our CTO before coming to work at rocket dollar built the bank at square and prior to that built Apple pay cash at a company called green dot. So that's a lot better than the stuff I built, by the way. Um, but now we're on <laughs> and the same team building. <laughs> and he's yeah. he only, he only helped build the thing that you know Goldman Sachs is uh, literally creating the robo advisor on. But yeah. um, I mean, which is just so cool. Um, what would be a piece of advice you would give listeners who have felt like outsiders? Something I noticed in my first season of the show was all my guests really. They came into fintech because they didn't feel like traditional finance mm-hmm. was right for them, nor traditional technology. So they kind of found in between here. So yeah, what's a piece of advice you'd give? Probably to be open-minded. I mean, I'm the same way. I got into finance as someone who didn't study business in my undergrad. I didn't go to an Ivy League school for undergrad. I went to a state school on a partial scholarship and I worked in financial services. So that's not iBanking or the analyst program at a major firm, but it wasn't proactive at the time, but I just kept my mind open enough to find a way to succeed within that organization. That wasn't the path that they all told you, which was, Hey, go hang out at golf courses and work with wealthy individuals and show them how to become even wealthier and tell them about Merrill Lynch and all the investments we have and how we can manage your money. I mean, you're a 21 year old kid. I use that system in a way to succeed by actually helping probably middle-class people that had a job that offered a 401k plan to just tell them to put $1 of every 10 they earned away. And actually probably was more successful than most of the people in my training class. And it was all just, I guess, being open to being creative within that organization. And I really felt like an outsider, right? Because I didn't have the $50 million account for the famous tech entrepreneur who just sold his or her company as a client at Merrill Lynch. I had XYZ company and I just came from their break room and I had to go lug 50 booklets of a 401k enrollment pack and they were in paper then to do it. But I think being open-minded, it's funny that sometimes you get accepted, you know, over time, like you, you find your way in that industry and FinTech for me was more of an outlet of just seeing how your own background will give you a path to seeing how you can make impact to people. And that was a big thing for me. I mean, I, I've never been an investment banker and so forth, but um, now all the people I talk to that do that, they find it as an incredibly boring job. They might leave and go into fintech, but if you do that, you know, they'll, you'll find something that's very personal to you because money is a pretty personal thing in some way, shape or form to every individual, whether you have it or not. And I think if you really follow that path, you can, that fintech idea will find you, or you can find the fintech that's helping to solve that problem. And you're probably smarter than that CEO. You just may not realize it. So go apply for a job. Mm-hmm. Or help them realize it. And right. they'll probably they may like not realize it, it, but just know that you might be smarter than that CEO. <laughs> Make them realize it. Um, right. Great pieces of advice. And now, and all of these working for you, uh, Rocket Dollar, I, I, you, earlier you, you had mentioned that 
you know, maybe about building audiences. And I, I see you on YouTube. I see the the content you're rolling out. In fact, I think it was the, um, oh, there was an article recently I saw that really gave you like five stars on content and education when it comes to, okay. it comes to Rocket Dollar, which is great. I know I have to, I think it was a Benghazi one. But anyways, it, I think that's awesome. And uh, to see the trajectory do so well is, is amazing, especially after just learning so much about you and your background. Yeah. If there's, you know, this need to be the change that we want to see, which you've embodied, what change do you think we need to see in fintech as an industry overall? You know, I think fintech needs to come back full circle and sort of be okay maybe actually asking the potential customer base that they would acquire to maybe pay a small amount for those services. So I think it's it's gotten a little bit too far in that we'll figure out other ways to make money that aren't actually charging you. So I don't know if this like sort of all everything being free, everything being opaque and behind the scenes of how we make money is is really good. I feel mm-hmm. like you know, we can go back to a time where people might pay very small amounts like you know, $1, $2 monthly subscription. And this is happening in media, right? Where people can now make donations to people that uh, that produce content. And if you got value out of reading an article, you could do that and so forth. Uh, I think in financial services, it kind of went to like a, a free, although nothing in the world is free. That's a very cliched term, but that is actually very true. Um, <laughs> but, but maybe more of an upfront, hey, there's an exchange of some small amount of money in return for the value that, that this product service or you know our company might provide to you. I think that'd be a good thing to swing back to. And then real quick, going back, I didn't, you know, your question about who who I might look up to in fintech and maybe someone you can reach out to for your show. But I talked to Tim Chen, the founder of NerdWallet, just Mm. on a friend to friend call. I think he's someone, a real interesting person to look up to. He was fired in the credit crisis as a trader at a hedge fund. Couldn't get a job because he was a trader at a hedge fund with an economics degree from Stanford. And a lot of his friends are asking him questions about, emergency savings accounts, mortgage refis, down payment, and stuff like that. So he just would write them back into emails and he parlayed that into NerdWallet. And as a fintech entrepreneur, that's the only company he told me he ever started. And it just went IPO a few months ago. And I thought, he's Asian American, originally grew up in Houston, and then moved to Atlanta. Um, Wow. So maybe similar background, at, at least from upbringing and age to me, and just thinking that, wow, one shot. And just the impact he's made, how many people read something on that site every day. Oh and the numbers have, have to be in the eight million or the eight figure really? millions per week. I'm one per of week. them. Yeah, so. I'm one of them. I mean, that's so interesting that he literally just kind of took, um, I mean, speaking of content, right? Like he just took what he was sharing with others and then put it, you know, publicly. And while, while being laid off and unemployable I mean, because his skill set was unemployable in probably 2008, 9, and 10. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, and he's a public company CEO who provides a lot of value in the financial services space to millions of people. And that turned into a public company. Incredible. In the course of 15 years. So that's, that's an amazing story to me. The impact, the, the growth and the success. Would you say that maybe he's one person in the fintech space that you think is that really giving that positive shaping of the future of our industry? I think so, because one, uh, he also doesn't talk about himself. He's very understated and quiet. And I don't know if before I just brought this up just now that you even knew that that was his name. 
the founder and CEO of NerdWallet is named Tim Chen. Uh, Incredible. Understated guy. And I just found him to be very down to earth and so forth. But, you know, I tried to tell him, I said, the impact that you've made, I mean, you've, you've saved people all this money, all these like mistakes and so forth. Something that no single financial advisor could do with a client base of your average 50 to 75 people who, by the way, are probably people of pretty decent means to begin with, right? Instead, you're communicating to, I don't know, 10, 20, 50 million people across a variety of topics through a digital medium. Yeah, incredible. And I'll be honest, I definitely did not know that that was his name. And despite the fact that I read NerdWallet probably daily and I'll go to it as a resource to, you know, to learn things, to learn about companies and and all of the things that they provide. Um, But what a, just what a killer story. And yeah, one that does have right similarities to your own. And I love the connection there. And and thank you for also sharing. Um, We kind of, we love like a, an underrated entrepreneur who honestly deserves more of a spotlight. And that's how I feel about all of my guests on, on the show as well. So thank you so much for, for sharing that. Really, I guess my last question for you is to tell us a little bit about what we can expect from you, from Rocket Dollar Next, and anything you can tease out for us. So right now, admittedly so, uh, the, the much smarter people on my team than myself, you know, we recognize that, that our product is very use-specific right now to alternatives. So we'll, we'll be coming out with a lot of features and a lot of capabilities over the next few months, uh, starting this summer to expand what people can invest in. So you're going to see that a lot from Rocket Dollar. And you're going to see probably a doubling or tripling down of our commitment to trying to put out useful content. So so I think for us, we want to communicate that this is what you should do with a part of your portfolio. So again, that 50, 30, 20, right? Probably 20% should be invested in, in some sort of alternative investment. And if for no other reason that it is not related to the rest of your portfolio. So for you to be this new diversified 21st century portfolio, you have to have some of these new asset classes, these asset classes that have actually been around and have been invested in by the wealthy people, but have probably previously not been available to the regular people. And I fully put myself in the camp of the average person who spent a lot of time, probably again, reading too many personal finance books, getting a CFP and being in this industry. And my whole purpose is probably to try to communicate what I know and now to build products that allow people to do what I think they, they should or could be doing in that space. Mm-hmm. That That's what I've been doing for the last 15 years now. And showing people what they can be doing. I think the emphasis on what they can be doing. Um, and that's, yeah, that's a beautiful thing. It's your, your story really does come full circle and yeah, I'm, I'm so excited to see rocket dollar just, you know, keep, going onward and upward. I think I just saw on, I think I saw it on YouTube, um, the, the, the NASDAQ uh, mention in, uh, in Times Square, I believe. There was oh, yeah. like the, the little image, I think it was a picture of you like pointing up at it, which must have just, that must have felt like such an amazing just moment as a founder, as an entrepreneur and someone who had all the experiences you did. And then to see something like that pop up in Times Square, I mean, that just must be, feels so fulfilling. I can it, it was. I mean, as someone who's followed the capital markets for a really long time, it's a, uh, it's a thing. On, on every trip I go to to New York, I, I, I usually try to walk past that studio. So, 
normal people in America have have broader interest. They'll go hang out and go try to catch Good Morning America. The finance <laughs> geeks will actually walk through Times Square and go peek in and see Aaron Ross Sorkin and Joe Kernan arguing it out on Squawk Box in the morning. Right? <laughs> I you'll love see it. them there from seven in the morning until nine thirty Eastern time. I right love through it. the well, window, right is- in Times Square. <laughs> I'm the same way. This is a this is a show for fintech and finance nerds. So you you yeah. got our attention, Henry. Thank you so much for joining the show. This has been so awesome. So appreciate it. Where can folks find you? Where's the best place to connect? All of the things. So uh, finding me pretty easy. So at Henry Yoshida, if you care to follow the stream of consciousness uh, uh, <laughs> notes that I take for myself. But for the Rocket Dollar side rocketdollar.com so just two words rocket and dollar uh, dot com and same thing on twitter at rocket dollar so we will put stuff out we uh a lot of the people on the team are purposed with writing uh, throughout the week so we're pretty good at putting out content and hopefully you get value from it it's not for us to get customers it's for us to to sort of share knowledge in the new style mm-hmm. of investing we call it 21st century diversification is what <sighs> we do but easy to find us at rocketdollar.com I love it. 21st century diversification. Thank goodness someone has to do it. Henry, thank you again for joining. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. To hear our next story from another diverse leader, be sure to tune in next week. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our show and give it a five-star rating as it helps our message reach more people who want to find belonging too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. To hear our next story from another diverse leader, be sure to tune in next week. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our show and give it five stars as it helps our message reach more people who want to find belonging too. Until next time.